being in our study of the book of Jonah. Let me begin by mentioning C.S. Lewis. Many people know C.S. Lewis as the man who wrote a children's book, The Chronicles of Narnia. Some people have read other works of his, like Mere Christianity or The Screwtape Letters. What many people don't know about C.S. Lewis is that before he became a Christian, he was an atheist, and not just any old kind of atheist, but a convinced atheist. And he would have um, discussions with J.R.R. Tolkien and some others at Oxford, and they would just talk about and debate the issues about Christianity. And he, he came to this point where he, he trusted in the Lord and converted to Christianity, made Christ his Lord and Savior. But he wrote about it in a very interesting way. And in a book of his called Surprised by Joy, in a chapter called Checkmate, this is what he said. I felt as if I were a man of snow, at long last beginning to melt. The melting was starting in my back, drip, drip, and presently trickle, trickle. I really disliked the feeling. Remember, I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. I had wanted, mad wish, to call my soul my own. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, that steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility that would accept a convert even on such terms. Who can duly adore that love which will open, high, which will open the high gates to the prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for escape? The words compel them to come in, Properly understood, they plumb the depth of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. I love his account and how he was honest about sensing the Lord closing in on him and saying that he desired not to meet this creator, but afterwards being able to adore the fact that God would have mercy upon him, even in that state where he was reluctant to embrace Christianity. I thought about this, and I wondered if Jonah could read C.S. Lewis in that account, if he wouldn't have a smile cross his face, knowing something of that desire not to be interfered with, not to be able to, to be overcome by this, this creator who's pursuing him. We're continuing in our study of Jonah, and we're going to be in chapter uh, 1, verse 7 today. We looked at the first six verses. And let me just give a quick review of where we were. Jonah was a prophet during a time of, of great falling away in Israel. And he ministered during a time of a very evil king who, instead of leading the people in righteousness, gave them new ways of sinning and, uh, and avoiding the Lord. And he was sent to his own people to proclaim to them uh, a gospel of repentance, to turn back to the Lord. He would have mercy on them, but also to warn them that if they continue in their own way, their, their sin is going to destroy them. And what Jonah was not ready for was the time when God came to him and told him to leave Israel and go to Nineveh. Now, in the ancient world, Nineveh had this reputation of being a terrorist state. 
they were crazy. They, they literally delighted in torturing people. And one other prophet by the name of Nahum talked about Nineveh as being a city filled with blood. And we mentioned last week, can you imagine if Bryan College Station was described that way? As a community, there's just simply filled with blood because of all the violence that occurred there. And so God had told Jonah to head in the direction of Nineveh. But Jonah, as the story goes, said, no, I'm not going to do that. And he had the exact opposite way towards Tarshish, which people believe is on the coast of Spain, a little port city there. Scriptures talk about the, the ships of Tarshish. And so he tries to go the exact opposite way. And as Jimmy and Jana read, God hurled a great storm toward them. One commentator talked about this storm like a heat-seeking missile upon this ship. God has Jonah in his sights. And so we're going to pick up in verse 7. And they, that is these mariners, these sailors, said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. They wanted to cast lots, believing that fate would point out to them who is the guilty party upon this ship. And they're not people who believe in the God of Israel. They're just seeking to find out what's going on here and trusting themselves to fate. It's interesting. Scriptures teach us God is sovereign even over the casting of lots. Proverbs says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Well, these people weren't looking for a decision from the Lord. They're just hoping for any kind of instance by fate here to help them figure out what's going on. And so we're told also in verse 7, they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now I want you to put yourself in Jonah's shoes here for just a moment, or his sandals or whatever he's wearing. You're fleeing from, Yah from, the, from Yahweh, the Lord. You're trying to avoid his call on your life. And this storm is raging, and you're freaking out as well. And you, you see the sailors here determining to cast lots. And as they cast the lots, it falls on you. <laughs> what was he thinking in that moment? I imagine he's like, you've got to be kidding me. This is unreal. And so in verse 8, they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Basically, who are you? What is going on here? Why is this happening to us? Tell us what you have done. Verse 9, I said to, uh, he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is an interesting way for him to respond. <laughs> he's, he's maybe giving too much information here. I don't know. He could have just said, I'm a Hebrew. But he says, I fear the Lord, the, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. See, people back then believed in kind of regional, local deities. The Syrians had theirs. The Babylonians had theirs. Wherever you went, people had their local, tribal deities. And here Jonah points out that the God he worships is not one of those local, tribal deities. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth, the, the sea and the land. So here they are in the middle of this raging sea, and Jonah says, the God who made all this, that's the God that I fear, that I serve. It's kind of ironic because here he is trying to flee this God who made everything. Where can he go from his presence? Where can he flee from him? He can't. He's hemmed in. And so he says, I fear the Lord. It's an interesting phrase in the scripture. Someone says, wait, what? What does he mean by he fears God? I think of God as loving, not fearful. Maybe you have that objection. And, and certainly the idea that God is loving is true. But what about this idea that, 
that people fear the Lord. What does that mean? Well, if you look at the scriptures, there's this wide range of this term fear of the Lord. It's kind of like our word love in English. It has a lot of elasticity. We talk about how you love your spouse. Talk about how you love your dog. Obviously, you don't mean the same thing by that. You love the first hint of of coolness in the air come October, hopefully. (laughs) And you love Mexican food. You mean different things by that word love. And in the scripture, it's kind of the same way. That, That word fear has a wide range of meaning from terror and dread on the one hand to devotion and trust and worship on the other. Do you remember C.S. Lewis's book, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Lucy goes into Narnia and she meets these characters, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And they tell him about what's going on in Narnia. And the context of that is that the white witch has placed a curse over the land and it's always winter and never Christmas. I mean, how much worse can it get as a kid if it's always winter and never Christmas? And they tell him that things are beginning to change, that the snow is beginning to thaw because Aslan is on the move. And they're asking the question, what is this about? And so they tell him about Aslan, and Lucy becomes quite nervous, the girl who goes in there. And she asks the question, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe? said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that story because I think it illuminates a very real way in which the scriptures talk about the fear of the Lord. Of course God isn't safe. He has all power. He could use that in any moment to do whatever he wants, but he's good, and he always uses his power for good purposes. So when the scriptures talk about the fear of the Lord, it uses a number of different ways to do it. It takes this example from Psalm 33. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. In Hebrew poetry, oftentimes the second line amplifies and builds upon the meaning in the first line. So here, let all the earth fear the Lord. What does it mean by that? Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And so, the NIV translates Jonah's phrase here as, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Even so, it's a bit ironic because he's not present tense worshiping the Lord. He's not present tense fearing the Lord. He's running from the Lord. He's not engaged in in devotion towards him. And so, we're told in verse 10 that the men were exceedingly afraid. Literally in Hebrew it reads, they feared a great fear. So if we were to chart that on that graphic I just had up there, they're not on that devotion and worship end. They're on that dread and fear, shaking in their bones kind of uh, fear. And so they said to him, what is this you have done? Like, what in the world? What have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So he says to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God who made everything, heaven and earth the sea and the dry land, and I am presently running from him. (laughs) And they're like, what in the world? Why? And then they asked him this question. They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea uh, may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Now remember, these are uh, seafaring sailors. They're used to storms on the Mediterranean Sea, and they're already freaking out. They're, They're throwing 
cargo overboard, losing money in doing that. And now the, t- the storm grows more and more tempestuous. I love that word, tempestuous. And they're like, what shall we do to you? Which is an interesting question. I wonder what they had in mind. I wonder what Jonah thought when they asked that question. <laughs> All eyes on him, right? This is what he said. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Here already in chapter 1 we see for the third time that word hurl. First time it appeared was when God hurled this storm at this ship. The second time was when the men start hurling the cargo overboard. Now Jonah says to them, hurl me overboard and the sea will grow calm for you. We're going to see that word appear one more time here. But for just a moment, let me ask you the question. What do you think of Jonah's response here? Put yourself in his position. What shall we do to you? The, the storm might calm down. He's like, oh, throw me overboard. Then the sea will calm down for you. Isn't that kind of bizarre? Why would he say that? What I want us to, to reflect on here together for just a moment is just the hardness of his heart. He knows why this is happening. And instead of saying, hold on, gentlemen, let me just pray to the Lord for a moment and repent of fleeing from him, and perhaps he'll have mercy upon us. He doesn't do that, right? He just says, throw me overboard. He, he's still not wanting to talk to this God who called him to go preach to the Ninevites, that wicked city, and he still wants to flee from him. And death seems more attractive to him than repentance in this moment. Isn't that bizarre? Remember, Jonah is a man of God. He's a prophet. He's used to calling people to repent. You would think that if these men wanted to do something to him, he'd just say, you don't have to do anything to me. I'm, I'm going to take care of this right now. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. There's that word tempestuous there. It is raging. I mean, it is the worst storm they've ever encountered, and they're trying their hardest to get back to land. They're not going to throw Jonah overboard. But alas, the ship is threatening to break apart. And here's what's interesting. These pagan sailors, who are not Hebrews, who do not worship God, all of a sudden do what Jonah should have done, which is cry out to the Lord. Verse 14, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. I'm not saying that they converted on this spot. But remember, early in the text, they were, we're told that they were calling out to their own gods, and that wasn't working. And so now they call out to the God that Jonah has pointed out to them, the one who made everything. So contrast them with Jonah, who is not calling out to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? And so in verse 15, they do what Jonah told them to do. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. They did what they didn't want to do, which was to throw this man overboard. But he literally asked for it, right? And there's no other option before them. They've got to see if this works, or else they're all doomed. And so they throw him overboard. And we're told that that storm just ceased. Can you imagine fearing for your life one second and then the next it becomes still? That must have felt so weird. 
Verse 16, we're told, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, what's going on here? It'd be really neat if we could just have a, a little cup of coffee and sit down all together and just brainstorm what is happening here. It says we're, we're told here that the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Is this the same kind of fear they had before? I mean, usually when, when people are trying to buy off God or something like that, they do something before the answer to prayer comes. But here, they threw Jonah overboard. They said, Lord, have mercy. Don't count us guilty for that. The sea calmed. And now they're fearing the Lord, and they're making sacrifices to him and making vows. Like the danger's past. Did they just convert to this God? It's a good question, isn't it? We're not really told explicitly, but it leaves us to wonder. Did these men have a genuine encounter with this God of all power as one moment that storm is raging and the next it is quiet? The New Living Translations uh, translation puts it like this. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. The New Living Translation is a, it's a paraphrase, but they're obviously thinking these men made this conversion. I don't know if that happened or not, but it's really interesting to contemplate, isn't it? And then we're told in verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And we made the comment last week that if anybody knows anything about the story of Jonah, it's about that, that poor unfortunate fellow who found himself swallowed by this great whale. And we're actually not sure if it was a whale. I mean, that would make sense. We're told it was a great fish. I don't know what all kinds of things are swimming around in the sea out there, or if this was a special creation by God. I'm not sure. But notice so far what this trajectory of Jonah's flight from the Lord looks like. We're told that he went down to Joppa. Instead of going to Nineveh, he went down to that port city. And there he went down into the ship. Then he went down into the belly of the ship. Then he went down into the deep sea. Then he went down into the belly of the fish. And as we're going to hear him talk about in just a moment, he's down in the belly of a grave. This is what happens when we, we insist on our own way and when we don't want God to interfere with us. We desire to call our soul our own, to do our own thing. We're on a trajectory downward away from God. The question is, is God's mercy, can it, can it chase us down even there? But someone says in this moment, see, this is why I can't take the Bible seriously. It's filled with all kinds of kids' stories that are really far-fetched. And many people's experience with the story of Jonah comes in kids' storybooks, right? That's where a lot of people hear about it. Is this something really to be believed? I mean, how can people, educated people like us, really contemplate something like this happening? Well, there's a couple options. There's some people who say this is a myth that never really happened. Um, it's just a story. Some people will build on that and say, well, it's, it's a fable. It's that kind of a story. It didn't really happen, but it's meant to teach them important lessons. Some people will say, well, this was a natural occurrence. I mean, there are episodes where people who've been bitten by seafaring creatures or even swallowed by them and spit back out. There are those kind of stories. So maybe this was something natural that did take place. Of course, there is the other option of the fact that this is something supernatural, that this is a miraculous event that took place. And 
And some people say, well, I don't like that idea of miracles. But here's the thing. Christianity is really built on two foundational miracles. One is the creation of this universe. God spoke, and it came into being. Science tells us in one moment there was absolutely nothing, and the next there's this big explosion, and everything came into existence that we see around us. The second miracle is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God bringing him back from the dead. So here's the thing. Everyone believes in at least one miracle because we're here. <laughs> How do we get here? Something happened. So to believe in miracles, at least for the person who has faith in Jesus, is not a hard thing to do. And it's not a hard thing to imagine that if God wanted to appoint a great fish, like the scriptures tells us he did, that he could certainly do that. If he spoke this creation into existence, he can certainly command that the sea creature come into existence to go after his prophet. And so we're told that very thing. God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I don't know about you, but this gives me the heebie-jeebies. I am claustrophobic, and you know my worst fear is being buried alive. Don't take advantage of that fear, just please. And so to be enclosed in a creature in the middle of the sea and just recounting everything that's happening to you would be utterly horrifying, right? And so Jonah, as far down as he can possibly go, has a change of heart. We're told in chapter 2, verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Isn't that interesting the way that this author puts it? (laughs) He prays to the Lord. He didn't have to put his God in there, but he just throws that in there. Jonah prays to the Lord, his God, the one that made heaven and earth, the land and the sea and everything in it. He prays to him from the belly of this fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You may remember that Sheol is that place in the ancient world that people thought of as where bodies are, where, where souls go while the body rests in the grave. And that was kind of more or less a nebulous kind of thing for people. They didn't know exactly what it was. But if you can just think of it as the graveyard, that's probably a a good parallel. He says in this passage here that he was in the belly of this fish. He cries out to the Lord from the belly of Sheol. Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet shall I look upon your holy temple. Isn't this interesting? Something is going on in this moment where Jonah is crying out to his God. And something clicks with him that this is not the end of his story. This seems so strange to me. He's in this belly of this fish, and he has this conviction that he's going to look upon the temple of God again. He goes on and says in verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. Here he is in the sea and in the depths of it, and he's, he's surrounded by seaweed. He's in a bad place. Verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit to the Lord my God. I was telling Dan right before the service that this, this song or this poem of, of uh, Jonah is, is just filled with references to the book of Psalms. And I was tempted to just spend some time just quoting those left and right, but we would be here for hours if I did. But here Jonah is, is praying, and he maybe is even singing. And these phrases from the Psalms that he's, 
He's memorized and no doubt sung in the temple, come flooding back into him. Here's an echo of Psalm 40, for example. He goes on and says in verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. The temple in Hebrew imagination, right, is that place where God manifests his presence. Even though he exists everywhere, it was there in a temple, in the Holy of Holies, and he manifested his, his presence. And so he says, I remember the Lord in, in the depths of my despair. My prayer came to you. And then he says this interesting thing. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. What is he thinking about here? I wonder if he's thinking about those sailors who are crying out in vain to their gods to, to, to calm the storm. He says, people who worship idols, who worship anything but the one true God, forsake their hope of steadfast love. What's going on here? He's recognizing, even in his desperate situation, all that he has is God, the creator of everything, and that's what he needs. And that, that word steadfast love, if we, as we talked about in our series on Ruth, is a word that's used some 250 times in the scriptures. It refers to God's mercy, his kindness, his goodness, his loyalty, his faithfulness. In fact, in the book of Exodus, when God revealed himself to Moses. He described himself as abounding in steadfast love. It's that word hesed. So Jonah says, those who worship anything but the true living God forsake their hope of hesed, of love, of faithfulness, of mercy, of grace. And then he says in verse 9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's Jonah in this bizarre place, in the belly of this great fish, praying, and maybe even singing to the Lord, and he's filled with conviction that he will see the temple, he will be able to sacrifice once again, and he will be able to pay the vows that he's making to the Lord right then. <laughs> like, Lord, if you save me, then I will do this. He's convinced that's going to happen. And he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's an interesting phrase, salvation belongs to the Lord. We normally think of salvation as being saved from our sin and going to heaven, and that's certainly the case. But it actually covers a wide range of, of meanings. Um, in Christopher Wright's book, Salvation Belongs to Our God, which I would commend, he talks about different ways the Scripture speaks this way. And it speaks of salvation belonging to the Lord in terms of deliverance from oppression of enemies, victories in battle, healing from sickness even, vindication in court, rescue from drowning, being rescued from death or from danger. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Wright goes on and he says this, the Bible recognizes that all those proximate evils from which God saves his people are manifestations of the far deeper disorder in human life. All of them, in their deepest roots, also, are also the result of rebellion and sin in the human heart. That is where the deepest source of the problem lies. Human rebellion and disobedience against God have injected their dismal effects into every dimension of the human person, into every dimension of human society and into the ongoing sad story of human history. There is therefore an ultimate need for God to deal with sin, sin in the world and sin in his own people. The biblical God who saves is the God who deals with sin. So even though the scriptures use salvation in a number of different ways, including being saved from the belly of a fish, Everything ultimately has to deal with this God who is working salvation for his people. Of course, it comes to point in the person of Jesus. Remember, 
when it was announced that Mary was going to have this child, it was said that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. We get this interesting glimpse in the book of Revelation as the the curtains are pulled back and the Apostle John gets this vision of heaven. And he says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so there's hymn of heaven, we might say, is the theme that salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's what Jonah said. (laughs) Salvation belongs to the Lord. And Jonah is the perfect example of this. He couldn't do anything to save himself, right? He had to simply cry out for mercy. And then we're told in verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Again, we could just sit there and contemplate what's going on here. God speaks to this fish. And unlike the prophet, the fish obeys him. (laughs) right? All creatures of our God and King, here's a creature the Lord speaks to. I don't know how he spoke to this fish, but gave it the command to spit up Jonah. And this fish obeys. So you had this rebellious prophet who disobeyed the voice of the Lord, this fish who was more than delighted to obey the voice of the Lord, and it spits him up on dry land, and that's where we find Jonah. Next week we're going to see what happens next. But let me just pause here and just do a couple points of application as we wrap up our study today. Here's the first point. Let's keep a soft heart towards God. Let's keep a soft heart towards God. Why do I say that? Here is Jonah, a prophet, a man of God, who manifested an incredibly hard heart toward God. Even when it, when, when it realized that he was about to die, he still would not bring himself to repentance. And if that's the case with Jonah, I wonder how that can be the case with us as well. I mean, we're all here, right? On the Sunday morning, we're singing praises to the Lord. We're studying the scriptures together. Yes. And we can still have a hard heart. We can be hiding in plain sight, so to speak. And so let's keep a soft heart toward the Lord. Last week when we introduced this series, we sang, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And it has that line in there. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. I was having a conversation with my friend Wes a couple weeks ago, and we're talking about just some ministers that we know who have fallen away and fallen into scandal. And in the, in the conversation with him, I, I told him that regularly one of my prayers is, Lord, don't ever let me do something like that. I know my heart is prone to wander. Keep me close to you. Don't let my life be a scandal. I want to be faithful to you. But how do we do that? We keep a soft heart toward the Lord. And the scriptures tell us, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or bridle, or it will not stay near you. Here the author, speaking in the voice of God, says, don't be like a stubborn animal that has to be forced to go the right way by a bridle. How much, how much better if we just offer ourselves to the Lord? Of course, the scripture says, as we've repeated oftentimes here at Mercy Hill Church, this one thing, above all, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. In other words, no matter what you do, guard your heart because everything you do flows from it. The heart is the springs of our life. 
Everything you do, from the words you say, the thoughts you have, the deeds you do, flow from the heart. So how can we do that? Some of you know that I love Tim Keller. He just recently passed away. He's probably had greater influence on my life and ministry than any other person. I remember hearing him talk one time about the way he tries to keep his heart soft by God. And so he said, 10 minutes a day or one hour every week, he carves apart some time to ask himself these questions. He asked himself, in what ways is my heart expressing coldness toward God? Hardness toward others? Pride in myself? Or hooked into lust or other enslaving actions or habits? I'm not saying you have to use this exact thing, but what if we did something like that? What if every day we just took an inventory of our heart and asked, is our heart hard toward God? Is our heart soft? In what ways is it manifesting itself? That would be a good practice. I mean, like C.S. Lewis, how do we want above all things not to be interfered with by our Creator? In what ways do we want mad wish to call our soul our own? It's a good question to ask. Jonah needed to ask these questions. We need to ask them as well. John Calvin put it like this. My heart I offer to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. What if that was the attitude of our hearts every day? Lord, I offer to you my heart promptly, right now, without delay, and in total sincerity. That's the first point of application. Let's keep a soft heart toward God. Here's the second one. Let's grow in amazement of the one who was swallowed up by death. And I'm not referring to Jonah. <laughs> Jonah is a sad and tragic figure here. But there is another figure who suffered tragedy. But he's not to be pitied. I'm speaking of Jesus, of course. The book of Hebrews tells us that we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Here was the prophet Jesus who when God said go, he says, here I am to do your will. And even when it cost him his very life, he was willing to lay that down. Not because he wasn't repentant, he had no sin to be repented of, but because he wanted to purchase people like you and me to pay for our sins, to bring us into heaven. In fact, we could throw up a compare and contrast chart with Jonah and Jesus. Jonah ran from God's mission, but Jesus ran toward it. He embraced it. Jonah underwent discipline as a wayward son. Jesus underwent punishment as a common criminal. Jonah suffered for his own sin. Jesus suffered for the sins of the world. Jonah felt abandoned by God. Jesus was actually abandoned by God. Jonah cried out and was delivered from death. Jesus cried out and was handed over to death. Jonah was raised by God from the depths of the sea. And Jesus was raised by God from the depths of the grave. <laughs> so if Jonah is a, trad, a sad, tragic figure, Jesus is not a sad, tragic figure. He is he's to be commended and worthy of all things. In fact, Jesus, at one point in his career, said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus knew that he was going to lay down his life. And like Jonah, he was going to be entombed, but that God would finally deliver him. So let's keep a soft heart towards God. Let's grow in amazement at the one who was swallowed up by death. And here's the third and final point of application. Let's rejoice 
in the fact that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life, lives. <laughs> Jonah went down, 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 down. And God's goodness and kindness and mercy chased after him. Of course, if you're tuned in to the scriptures, you know I'm, I'm parroting here Psalm 23, that story of the great shepherd who leads us beside still waters. And that psalm, we're told that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. And when I was in seminary, I had a professor who translated that phrase as goodness and mercy dogging our steps all the days of our life. I never really got the full embrace of that phrase dogging our steps until we had this dog called Tess and it just imprinted on Heather from the day that we picked it up at the uh, animal shelter and it followed Heather around all the days of her life. In fact, she couldn't even go to the bathroom without that dog going and sitting against the door waiting anxiously for her to emerge from the bathroom. God's grace is like that. It dogs our steps. It follows us. It pursues us. It chases us down just like it chased down Jonah. So let's keep a soft heart towards God. Let's grow in amazement of one who was swallowed up by death. And let's rejoice in the fact that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. So Mercy Hill Church, may you offer your hearts promptly and sincerely to the Lord, whose goodness, mercy, and grace will follow you all the days of your life. In Jesus' name.